The United States' first medical school, the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, was founded 250 years ago. However, age has not dulled its focus on excellence in patient care or cutting-edge medical education. Consequently, it also is one of the hardest schools to get into. Let's find out how you can get accepted in this interview with Dr. Neha Bepawala, Dean for Admissions at the Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 455th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's Med School Admissions Calculator can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash medquiz, complete your quiz, and you not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accepted.com slash medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Our guest today is Dr. Neha Vepawala, Professor and Vice Chair of Education in the Department of Radiation Oncology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She is also the Dean of Admissions at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. She earned her bachelor's in biology and Hispanic studies from Johns Hopkins and her MD from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Vepawala, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Now, today's podcast. We're going to learn all about uh, UPenn, but I'd like to start, if you could, by giving an overview of the Perlman School of Medicine's curriculum. Absolutely. And uh, I really, again, appreciate the opportunity to speak to our listeners today about our idea of medical school education here at the Perlman School of Medicine. And we think of it as learning for life. So really establishing the foundation of medical education, but recognizing it goes and extends well beyond our students' time with us um, and really establishes the the best practices and the foundation for a lifetime of learning, which I think all of us in the healthcare field understand. Um, It's a very humbling and constant reminder how much there is yet to know. So we start in the summer of the first year of medical school with the core principles, what we refer to as module one. So it's all of your uh, basic sciences. This is a pass-fail block. And the idea is really for all of our learners, all of our students who may or may not have been science majors in undergraduate, who may or may not have done a post-baccalaureate year, um, it's bringing everyone on to that same page as far as our basic sciences. And then after that first six month period, we launch into module two, which is a full calendar year. So it runs January of your first year into December of your second year in medical school for what's called integrative systems and disease. So it's taking all of those foundational basic science elements and it's saying, okay, how does this apply to the human body? How do we think about the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, renal, and so on and so forth. Uh, And it goes through all of these disease site, organ-based modules with this idea that you're learning about what's normal, the normal function of the human body, the physiology, and then learning to identify the pathology. 
both, you know, in terms of what you see under the microscope, what you see in the human patient in front of you in the exam room, and really integrating all of it so that the learning in the classroom is given immediate clinical impact uh, and context. Now, these basic science and then um, disease site-based modules are of course integral, but concurrent with all of this, we have module three. So it's running also from that first day of medical school through December of the second year, what's called technology and practice of medicine. And so you're learning, okay, of course there's science, but there's also so many other aspects of healthcare, the business of healthcare, the innovation, the role of information technology and artificial intelligence and everything in between to really um, help understand and give some, some depth to a lot of what we're learning in the classroom, so to speak, the, the core curriculum, this is meant to uh, enhance. And then the January of the second year, so now we've finished that first year and a half, we move right into core clerkships. So at the Perlman School of Medicine, actually over 20 years ago, this was designed to be you know, unheard of at the time, very early entry into the clinic. Now we do have, of course, other of our colleagues uh, at other schools who do offer this. But again, um, this is something that you know was really designed uh, way back when with the idea that until students really get into the clerkships and are in the hospital, are in the outpatient and inpatient setting, working alongside teams, uh, you know, all of these principles and foundational sciences don't really feel as relevant as they do when you when you get in there and roll up your sleeves and start working. So that entire calendar year, January of year two through December uh, of year three is performing all of your core clerkships. And that leaves also on the back end a year and a half in a traditional four-year curriculum. And I'll point out that many of our students do extend beyond four years for additional degrees, taking advantage of our university uh, offerings in many other graduate schools. They might choose to pursue a certificate. They may take a year out for science uh, research or other types of uh, entrepreneurial or other pursuits. Or they might even be combined degree students seeking a PhD. But if you just think of the traditional four-year curriculum, there's a whole year and a half for electives, for research, for a scholarly pursuit requirement that we have in which a three-month period is spent in a dedicated course of, of research with mentorship uh, and with deliverables. And so that is a, a brief overview of the four years. And I want to mention that throughout the entire medical school curriculum is our professionalism and humanism course that is considered module six, also pass fail, and also designed to really give context and breadth and depth to what is uh, you know, being taught in the traditional med medical school environment. This is sitting down and taking time and pausing and thinking about some of the particularly challenging ethical, moral, personal, emotional, psychological aspects of what it is to be a medical professional and what it is uh, to have humanity in everything that we do. So, you know, again, the vast majority of all of these modules are pass-fail, except for the clerkship year. And we have a lot of unscheduled individual time. We have, um, throughout all of this, learning teams that really help you to understand what it is to be a team member, whether you're a leader or a listener, learning both roles. And really thinking about, as I said, that final year and a half, 
to individualize and flex the curriculum depending on your interests. So uh, hopefully that gave all of our listeners a nice overview. I think it was a great overview. Thank you so much. Um, In terms of that last year and a half, I mean, do, do most people, most of the, of the Perlman students, do they use it to pursue a scholarly uh, research? Do they use it to get the certificate or do they use it to, to pursue other clerkships? Yeah, so actually, I would say all of the above. Um, we do have uh, quite a few who engage in research and decide they want to do even more time and take that that year out dedicated usually to uh, research in a uh, basic science lab, but not by any means limited to that. A lot of our folks choose to do clinical research, public health pursuits, global oncology, certainly not in the current pandemic times, which have um, obviously limited travel, but historically that's been how their time is used. And almost half of our students regularly pursue additional certificates and or master's degrees. I mean, some years actually more than half. Um, So get this MD plus, if you will, training. And in the case of the certificates, that doesn't even extend your time beyond the four years. The additional master's degree might uh, typically add on one year of training. So five years typically. Is, is graduating earlier an option or is that not, not an option? That is not an option um, just based on the, the way the curriculum is designed and also in order to meet all of the LCME requirements and, and other aspects that has not been currently a feature of our curriculum. Okay, great. What would you think listeners don't realize about the Perlman School, especially applicants, or what are some myths about the Perlman School that you would like to dispel? So I appreciate this opportunity because I think a key aspect is the perception that some may have that our students or our our environment is hyper-competitive. I can understand why that might be uh, felt to be the case at certain schools, given some of the the metrics um, and the characteristics academically of the students whom we admit. But having said that, uh, the curricular structure and ultimately the admissions process and its holistic nature actually lends itself to a very diverse population and a truly collaborative environment. And I want to give a lot of that credit, of course, to our, to our faculty, our staff, our students, and the per- their personalities and their, their general proclivity for creating an environment that is actually meant to build each other up rather than stepping on someone to get ahead. And I think that is honestly at the heart of our ethos, um, but also the learning teams, which literally on day zero, you arrive for orientation and you are thrown in, uh, so to speak, and introduced to your learning team. And then we also have the house system, which is basically four houses that you are assigned to one of the four, regardless of whether you're a four-year MD student or an MD PhD applicant, whatever it is, everyone joins a house and it creates a sense of community within community. It creates a sense of supporting each other across the years. So first years mingle with seniors and everything in between. There are faculty mentors who support these learning teams and the house system. And there's everything from social events to, of course, um, you know, the foundational learning that, that, uh, that our students are here for. So all of this is to say, I think, even though it could be a hyper-competitive environment just by being medical school. We strive through all of these programs and through our, um, through our personalities and through our, our tone and our tenor from the top down 
to create an environment that is nothing short of uh, supportive and embracing and inclusive. And the other thing I would mention that it's located in an urban setting with a very rare find, I think, of having uh, practically all of the health system buildings. So the Perlman Center for Advanced Medicine, which is the largest outpatient care center in our health system, a brand new hospital that's state-of-the-art that just opened two months ago. The Children's Hospital, thank you. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is a top-ranked pediatric hospital, all of our major research buildings, and then our main campus with a top graduate school at Wharton and a top nursing school, our communication school, our bioengineering, uh, our law school, all of these are within walking distance or perhaps a short bike ride away. So to be able to have that in geographic reach and proximity, and then of course the diversity of the population of students, faculty in the community that we serve, um, I think is, is something that maybe not all of our listeners appreciate. So it's a nice thing to be able to highlight. And I think a, a rather rare thing as well. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. So the questions that occurred to me when you were, when you were talking about the collaborative nature and the learning teams, well, one question was, do students consistently work with the same learning team throughout medical school or is it per year or per class or how does that work? That was one question. And the other question is, do you think the uh, abundance of pass-fail courses contributes to the collaborative environment at Perlman? Excellent question. So the first one, um, the learning teams, several learning teams you know, comprise a house. So there is continuity in terms of day zero, as I said, at orientation, you're in this learning team. You do work with them throughout modules one and two and three, and then that professionalism and humanism, which is module six and runs the entire gamut of your medical school training. When you're on the clerkships and when you're on a given elective and when you're doing your scholarly pursuit or perhaps you're doing um, you know, a specialized uh, certificate or master's, then you're not necessarily you know, seeing your learning teams as much, you're in different teams, but the idea is that there will still be opportunities where your learning team comes back together because of the professionalism and humanism course, because of connections that you formed, uh, and because you know quite often uh, there there are bonds that are formed with with these classmates that are that are life lasting, and so there are is that common thread of your learning team throughout. But then new teams, new team dynamics, are absolutely thrown into the mix when you're in the clerkships, and that's the whole point: is to take what you've learned from being a team member and studying how to be on a team. I mean, it is in itself a discipline. And then applying that when you're thrown into various teams uh, in the clerkships sure. is fundamental to the learning. And then, you know, I would like to think that the pass fail, um, you know, environment certainly contributes and helps. But even before when we were not pass fail for the majority of these modules, you know, we did, I think, due to the nature of the team building, the camaraderie building, the emphasis and focus on life outside of medical school and the unscheduled individual time to, to really understand what it is to be a member of a larger society outside of medical school, including the other graduate schools. I think that that lent itself to um, already having that collaborative environment, but I do believe the students would tell you that the pass-fail nature absolutely further supports that. Got it. Okay. Now you mentioned COVID is uh, affecting the international component or the global components 
of the of the curriculum. What COVID adaptations or changes do you think uh, will continue beyond the pandemic that we hope at some point will end? <laughs> yeah. Um, we've been very fortunate to be able to, you know, maintain uh, outside, of course, the immediate period in spring of 2020 when the entire world was uncertain. Uh, outside of that, we've been able to really maintain the curriculum as much as possible to its original intent and have our clerkship students um, participate in patient care as they need to. But I think some of the things, some of the things that may stay with us. One that will be interesting to see is if admissions numbers continue to be up nationwide. Uh, I think there's this concept of the Fauci effect and a general interest and reinvigoration of what it is to be a healthcare provider. Uh, and I think a lot of young folks have been inspired by the examples that they've seen. I think it, certainly for me, it's, it's so heartening and it's one of the, the few um, pluses that we've seen come out of this is that perhaps more people are called to action. So that trend of more young individuals being interested in, in careers in healthcare. And I don't just mean medicine um, as a physician, but other branches of medicine, nursing, et cetera, perhaps hopefully that will last. I think the use of virtual classrooms and more flexible teaching within the classrooms and of course, virtual interactions like this, uh, particularly for teams um, that perhaps can't meet for periods of time, but can still maintain connections. I think that is hopefully something uh, that will last. And what remains to be seen, Linda, and I don't know where it's headed, it's too, certainly too soon for us to say, is what the role of interviews for student selection, uh, you know, in a virtual format will be moving forward. There are obviously pluses and minuses as with every technology and certainly making it uh, more accessible and more affordable for applicants is a wonderful thing but denying them the opportunity to be on a given campus and to have that interaction with the community here, I think is a major loss. So that I think is very much TBD. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good one. Now let's turn to medical school admissions and specifically Perlman admissions. Does Perlman screen before sending out secondaries or are they automatic? Uh, so in terms of our, first of all, this, the secondary uh, application, we do not screen. So okay. anyone who is um, verified as an eligible candidate through the AMCAS system is sent the link to our secondary application. Okay, great. Now, Penn's secondary application is one of the more thorough and demanding secondary applications. What are you trying to glean from this very comprehensive secondary other than that the applicant is really interested in Perlman <laughs> or they wouldn't want to complete it? You know, there's obviously a lot in it. Yes, um, and I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I'm not. Yeah. I, that wasn't. It was intended as a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, our secondary. It's really, uh, as with most secondaries, it's intended to cover ground that's not in the general primary application. It's really trying to help our committee, which is dedicated to holistic student selection process, to get to know the candidates uh, on a more personal level on aspects that the candidate would like to highlight, particularly with COVID, um, we have added a couple of areas in which candidates can share with us to the extent that they wish and feel comfortable how the pandemic has impacted them, impacted loved ones, perhaps might explain some areas in their application that are not um, you know, as strong as they would like them to be. So it's, it's providing that opportunity. 
And we also want to understand their motivation for medicine beyond Perlman. Um, you know, I think it's now more incumbent than ever to help these young folks by the same token that I just said, it's very heartening and, and wonderful to see this huge influx of more applications nationwide to medicine. I think we also owe it to these applicants to make sure that they know what they're signing up for and that they can articulate what that motivation for a long-term successful career in medicine looks like for them and, and what it is that they envision. And I think being able to share that with the committee so we can understand what these decisions are based on and where the, these applicants see themselves fitting into to the medical school community, I think is just, again, an additional opportunity for these applicants to highlight themselves. And I guess the last thing I would mention is that all of our applicants, regardless of their own personal racial, ethnic, uh, socioeconomic, sexual identity background, we ask them to speak to how they would contribute to our environment of equity and inclusion uh, and what their own personal um, uh, background and or you know, personal ethos, how they will contribute to that environment and see themselves contributing since we all play a role in creating that no matter who we are. Okay, great, thank you. Thank you very much. What are some of the more common mistakes you see applicants make in approaching that demanding secondary, thorough secondary, let's put it that way? Yeah. So, you know, and again, um, as, as you are well aware, anyone applying in, in medical school tends to be of a certain <laughs> of a certain personality, and I'm sure they've double, triple, quadruple checked uh, their applications. So I'm, I'm pleased to say the majority of the time, we really don't find any errors, really kind of flawless, extremely thoughtful applications that we receive. On rare occasions, we may find answers that were meant for another school and somebody might've had a cut paste error um, or perhaps you know, uh, the hours that they say that they did in a certain activity um, might not be clear if that is concordant with you know, something shown somewhere else. But, uh, but as I say, thankfully, those are, those are rather rare. I, I think I misspoke a little bit. I didn't mean so much typos. I meant more uh, conceptual errors or, oh. uh, you know, errors in, in approaching the application. Sure. sure. The so process. The process, yeah. Well, one thing would be, again, I think if, if, um, if the motivation for medicine is articulated yet the personal experience, and again, with the caveat that COVID has really waylaid many, many people's plans for clinical shadowing, for hands-on research, for volunteer um, experiences and giving back to their community, I, I recognize that they've been limited. Um, but outside of pandemic times, in general, I think if you're uh, saying that you have this, you know, sort of uh, very strong desire to be in medicine, yet many aspects of your application don't show that you've actually spent much time with a physician shadowing a clinic or working with patients in some capacity, that can be a little bit uh, difficult to reconcile. Another thing might be when, when you choose your, your most meaningful accomplishments and applicants all have the choice of their, of their top three most meaningful. If you pick something that isn't otherwise clear from the standpoint of an admissions committee member looking at your application thinking, oh, that's strange. You know, they only spent very limited time doing this, yet they named it. If you can't articulate coherently or or convincingly why that should be one of your top three that can sometimes, again, it's not an error per se, but it could, it could raise a, a few questions. 
And then I think the, um, a little bit to what I was saying earlier, it's sort of the equivalent of putting another school's name. For me, it's more, if the answer to why specifically the Pullman School of Medicine, why Penn, if the answer is so generic that it could literally just be cut and pasted into, into virtually anything, um, it does disappoint a bit because you'd like to think that individuals could be more thoughtful about why they added us to their list. And is there something in particular that we offer that they're hoping to take advantage of? That's what we want to hear about and see that passion. Yes, and more and more schools have added early clinical exposure, but you really do have a distinctive curriculum, distinctive approach. Yeah, so. and actually our, our new vice dean, Dean Rose, has, is committed you know, to really on day one of, of orientation, throwing them into a, you know, a, a patient, an example with the, the patient there to speak about their experience, how some scientific research and clinical care has transformed their lives, you know, really powerful stuff day one. Uh, and then of course, continuing that through that first year and a half with a lot more shadowing opportunities and expanded opportunities for longitudinal experiences with chronic patients. So again, COVID has, you know, put a little damper on that, obviously, for obvious reasons, but, but that's a commitment that she's had to move it even earlier than it already is. How do you view virtual shadowing? Virtual shadowing isn't, uh, unfortunately, going to ever <laughs> parallel um, the, the real thing, but I think it does work for some settings where it's primarily an, uh, an outpatient ambulatory setting and patients are being seen for follow-up of a chronic condition or perhaps a new diagnosis of something that will be a chronic condition. And through formats much like this one that are HIPAA compliant and, and of course appropriate for patient-provider interaction, a medical student or an undergraduate interested in medicine with all the right clearances could, could listen in, could participate. Of course, they'd be introduced to the patient, the patient would give consent, but they could learn a lot you know, uh, from this interaction between the provider and the patient and what kind of considerations go into care in this telemedicine sort of format. So I think there's still value to, to shadowing in that regard, but you know, a lot of the procedural hands-on uh, type of stuff, you're not gonna be able to reproduce. Good. I would also assume that you miss completely the, the casual interactions, yes. you know, yes. that you would get if you're in a doctor's office That's or exactly in a hospital right. or network or a clinic or, or wherever it is that somebody is shadowing. That's right. That's but, exactly um, right. Okay. What process does an application go through at Perlman when it is verified by MCAS and somebody submits a secondary? What happens then? So um, once they've completed a secondary and then their application is considered complete, uh, they all undergo an administrative screening. And then the next step is screening by members of our screening faculty committee. So that can range anywhere from 12 to 16 faculty from, oh. from Children's Hospital Philadelphia and the Pullman School of Medicine. Uh, and these are individuals from various different academic departments, uh, you know, within the, the medical school, and they all take certain groups of schools so that from year to year, uh, a given faculty member on our screening committee is accustomed to seeing, let's say, individuals from all uh, California schools, for example, or uh, this subgroup of schools. So they develop some familiarity uh, with these um, undergraduate schools of training, and they're able to more comfortably navigate the transcripts, et cetera, because they've seen them before. Once that screening is complete, then I, as the associate dean of admissions, 
uh, review all of the screen scores, the comments, and determine who obtains an interview. Once the interview is complete, uh, and we do two interviews, one is by a faculty interviewer and another is by a student interviewer, uh, one, uh, one of our students, and it could be anywhere from a first year student to somebody doing a year out or in their last year. So we, we use all of our um, students who are, who are interested in interviewing. Everyone, of course, undergoes interviewer training, et cetera. But um, after the, the two interviews and the scores are in, the applicants are all reviewed by the Committee on Admissions. Now, the Committee on Admissions is comprised of a, uh, a large group. It's actually 25-ish faculty and 10 student members. Not all the student members have votes. Uh, only five of them have votes. The majority of the votes are, are standing faculty um, because that's compliant with the LCME rules on admissions. And the Committee on Admissions decides either to advance the applicant to the executive committee to recommend waitlist or to essentially you know, not advance them to executive committee. And so the executive committee then meets regularly. That's a much smaller group. Uh, I chair that committee. Uh, and that's a group of, of seven that um, meet regularly to help build the class from the recommendations of the Committee on Admissions. And then we usually process the final decision about accept versus waitlist versus not accept in March of every year. So March is when people typically get answers from Perlman? That's right. This episode is going to air February 1. By then, will all interview invitations have been sent out? Um, so, yes. The, uh, the typical format for us is that um, since our official interview program ends at the end of January. Oh, yeah. yeah so obviously um, then. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, all right. They're all up. Typically, you know, every now and then there could be a snow day or something back when we used to have in-person um, interviews. But since everything's virtual, there's really no expectation of cancellations or delays. So basically, if you're not offered an interview, you'll, you'll be notified formally, but you can kind of assume if you haven't heard by then. Do you, well, you kind of indicated that you're not sure where interviews are going to go once travel restrictions are, have eased. You're not sure if you're going to offer an in-person option or, um, or stick with virtual, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. Um, does Perlman consider letters of intent or update letters? And if so, at what phase of the application process? Yeah, sure. So we consider updates from applicants, letters of intent from applicants at any point in the process okay. um, through the applicant portal. So they can use the document upload tool. And that's the best way to make sure that whatever they're sending us gets placed in their file where all committee members would be able to see them. I'll just mention, we don't even, we don't cap the number of letters of recommendation. Although, I noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. Although AMCAS limits it to a total of 10 through their, through their system, their letter writer system. So if there are later unsolicited letters of recommendation that are sent along, they can be helpful because again, we have a holistic review process. So anything that's sent and added to the file is fair game for consideration. So an example might be, say an applicant started a new role or had some new award or new honor at the beginning of the admission cycle, but the supervisor or PI for that wasn't quite ready to write that letter at that time. Maybe they want to write it later when they have more insight and more experience working with them. And so there might be a delayed letter of recommendation. And so, you know, if it's sent to us and it's, you know, official, we will include it in the file. Okay, great. Good to know. It's so interesting because there's such diversity on that question among medical schools from 
we don't consider them at all do we consider them at this phase to i mean it's it's for me it's fascinating but obviously that's that's fine Mm-hmm. How do you look at candidates who have a, a criminal record or an academic infraction on, on their record? So we recognize that, you know, there can be myriad circumstances that could lead to that. So as a committee, we will always review the circumstances, you know, and the details that are provided by the applicant. So what was the infraction? How has the applicant learned from this experience and this error? And what's been done to remediate if needed, that behavior or to prevent further infractions in the future. So we're looking for sort of a sense of what went wrong and and how can we all be reassured, you know, that that wouldn't be a a recurring issue. Right. I guess you're looking for a little bit of growth from the experience too. Absolutely. Right. Now you mentioned the increased application volume in general to medicine. How was Perlman's application volume this year so far, well, I guess, obviously applications are all in compared to the 2021 cycle, which was, I guess, the the first year of uh, the first full year with COVID and to the 2019-20 cycle, which was, you know, applications were all in when COVID really hit. Yeah. So from, from 2019 to 2020, you know, we did have some growth, but then that pandemic year, 2020 to 2021, that's when we saw around a 20% increase and many wow. schools were, were in that in that ballpark in terms of increase in applications. So compared to that major jump, again, we had been relatively stable the five years prior to the pandemic. Right. Right. So compared to the 2020 to 2021 jump of, of nearly 20%, this year, we're still up compared to pre-pandemic time, but we are down from last year, you know, so we're more on the order of uh, being up five to 7% compared to our usual baseline, which is still a huge amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And on a forward-looking note, what advice would you give to med school applicants planning to apply to Perlman in 2022, this summer, or even thinking ahead to the following year? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, of course, first and foremost, um, we uh, love hearing and uh, knowing that these folks are out there with with these um, aspirations and, and interest in, in medicine. And I think making sure you have that local mentor, advisor, uh, groups of mentors and advisors who are uh, supporting you all along the way is, of course, always critical. And in terms of just some basic nitty gritty, you definitely, if you can, want to try to get your applications in early. You want to, together with getting it in early, still, however, proofread everything, proofread it uh, again and again with a trusted source as well. And then I would encourage everyone to always make sure and review the MSAR, make sure each school's requirements for application are clear. You know, there can be some nuances and you wouldn't want to make, you know, some silly oversight. So definitely for every school you're considering, just check that you've met all the requirements for that particular school. So you wouldn't be left out on a technicality that's, that's generally across the board. And then I would say, you know, as you think about where you're applying and where you might, you know, ultimately interview or end up. You really want to think about where you want to be geographically, where you want to train, perhaps more urban or more rural environment. Would you prefer a larger or smaller medical school program, one that's part of a huge university that's, again, um, you know, all within sort of walking distance versus perhaps a smaller program or or one that's not part of as large a university? And, And what might work best for you in terms of particular school that has a greater emphasis, say, in certain areas of research or certain um, clinical areas of excellence. You know, most schools do, of course, offer everything, um, but there might be certain 
aspects that that health system is known for or their particular associated research enterprise is known for. And so just giving some thought to that, again, not to the extent that it would rule schools in or out entirely on its own, but I think it's the you know, totality of all these considerations that one might consider as you're, as you're going through the application process in the, in the years to come. Great advice, thank you. Are there mm -hmm. any questions you would have liked me to ask you? Um, well, no, I think, uh, I think you hit on uh, a lot of them and, and I tried to make some points along the way that, that I wanted to convey. And, you know, again, I'll just, I'll just say that it, while we are all living through our own, you know, incredible challenges right now with the pandemic and all of the aspects of our lives that it has impacted, uh, there is something to be said about being engaged in patient care and being able to take care of people during these most vulnerable times that is continuously rewarding. And for those of you that are contemplating and, and seriously considering you know, medical school applications, I, I commend you and I applaud you and I, and I encourage you all to try and find ways when you can, um, even during these times where things might not, the opportunities might be limited, try and reach out to your advisors and people who may know somebody else within the network to, to see how you can get more involved, whether it is through virtual shadowing, whether it is through other community service experiences, uh, whether it is through vaccination clinics, whatever it may be that allows you to keep busy and sort of re-engage in this commitment. Because it's not just about, yes, it lo will look good on the application, but of course it's, it's about making sure that you are committed to, to this path and, and giving you that additional experience um, under your belt so that you can feel better equipped for the application process. Wonderful. Thank you again. Dr. Vepawala, I think we're almost out of time. You've been very generous with your time, and this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners learn more about Penn's Perlman School of Medicine? Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you for having me, and uh, I encourage everyone to go to med.upenn.edu and look us up for any additional information or, or get in touch with us if you need something that you can't find there. Great. Thank you. We're going to include links in the show notes at accepta.com slash 455 to the Perlman School of Medicine and the URL that Dr. Vepawala just gave, as well as to other resources that may be of help to you listeners. Listener, thank you too for joining us for our 455th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with deans, admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. And a final quick reminder, don't miss the med school admissions quiz. Find out if you are really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at exhibit.com slash medquiz today. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.